When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting. We plan to take you into some of our favorite bird covers as we talk to the people that hunt them and the organizations that support them. We'll also break down the dogs, guns, and gear used to pursue them, and of course, we'll share the stories that celebrate this American tradition. It's one of those things that you do that, that feels timeless. My dad brought home our first Brittany when I was about 10 years old. The Red Gods are calling, and I must go. These are your stories. This is the Project Upland Podcast, presented by Onyx Hunt. On this episode of the show, we are on location at Northwoods Bird Dogs with Jerry Coulter. Welcome back to the show for episode number 107. Upland Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Use the promo code PUP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription today. And by Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food. Out in the field, how you prepare determines how you perform. With balanced fat and protein to support peak condition in your bird dog, Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food enhances strength, energy, and endurance, so when that tailgate finally drops, you and your dogs are ready for anything. Strong, focused, ready for anything, that is a Yukonuba dog. 
and by CZ USA Shotguns, shotguns designed with the Upland Hunter in mind, and there is still time to design your ideal Upland hunting shotgun. The next Upland shotguns that CZ USA will bring to the market, head over to projectupland.com, look for the CZ USA Shotgun Design Survey, and tell us what you want to see today. And finally, by Dakota 283 Kennels. Kennels built to last a lifetime, one-piece rotomold design, frame steel door, everything you and your dog need in a kennel for a safe and successful hunting trip. Head over to dakota283.com and use the promo code PU20 to save 20% on your next kennel purchase from Dakota 283. All right, this week's winner of the podcast giveaway is Ryan M. Ryan left us a review on the iTunes podcast app. Thank you, Ryan. Project Up and T-shirt headed your way very soon. Or we still have a few copies of the audiobook Woodcock Shooting. Ryan will have his choice, and anybody listening could be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway. All you got to do is make a meaningful contribution to the show. You can leave us a rating, leave us a review like Ryan did. We love those. Subscribe to the podcast, share the podcast, send us some feedback or a guest suggestion. We love to hear from our listeners. You can email me directly at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com. All right, I'm still drinking my Gundog Grind English Setter Blend coffee. It's good stuff. It's for sale. Check it out, Gundog Grind on Facebook. All right, on this week's episode of the Project Upland Podcast, I'm interviewing Jerry Coulter for the second time on the podcast. This time I was on location at his kennel in East Central Minnesota, Northwoods Bird Dogs, where Jerry breeds English setters and pointers, specifically for grouse and woodcock hunting, but you could really say Jerry and Betsy are breeding wild bird dogs for the upland bird hunter. And I, in fact, have one of their dogs, and in just a couple short days, I will have my second English setter from Northwoods Bird Dogs. Last week, I went down to the kennel. I spent some time with Jerry. We trained dogs. We ran my six-year-old English setter, Hartley. Talked all about training adult dogs, and more importantly, we talked training puppies, as I will have my hands full with one very soon. It's cliche, but Jerry is the kind of guy that has forgot more about grouse and grouse dogs than I will ever know. I learn something every time I talk to him, and I really, really enjoy spending time with him and getting a look into his experience and insights on bird dogs, and I'm certain you will too. I hope you enjoy this one. Let's welcome into the conversation and onto the Project Upland podcast of Northwoods Bird Dogs, Jerry Coulter. Ready to go, Jerry. Okay. Welcome back to the Project Upland podcast. Thanks for joining me today. You're very welcome. <laughs> so I was I was just looking this morning, Jerry, and it was I didn't do this on purpose actually, but about two years ago I interviewed you and I interviewed Keith Coyle, wing shooting instructor, and Travis Warren. Uh, he's a host of the Upchucker podcast. Right in a row. I don't remember exactly the order that those three episodes were in. My previous two episodes have been with Keith Coyle and Travis Warren, so now here I am sitting with you. We're doing the same three episodes two years later, and it's actually been kind of fun when I was talking to those two guys, just everything that's changed in the last two years, and I I remember our conversation vaguely a little bit. I've done a lot of these podcasts, so I don't remember all of them, but we're here on scene, on location at Northwoods Bird Dogs. Would you call this East Central Minnesota? Yep, definitely East Central. Grouse country? Grouse country, woodcock country. Yep. For the listeners that did not catch our episode a couple of years ago, we'll we'll definitely talk a little bit about what you do. But give us give us a little intro, kind of where we are and and what goes on here at Northwoods Bird Dogs. Okay, well here we are in East Central Minnesota, our our main place in Northwoods Bird Dogs, at least our summer place. And um, we basically breed and train bird dogs here. 
work on wild birds. We do pigeon work here. We do things like that. Again, for half the year we're here anyhow. Yep. And then they're halfway down in South Georgia. But When did you get back from Georgia this year? We usually get back sometime around the 1st of April, end of April. It's hard to say. It depends on the year when the snow melts up here. Yeah. Yeah. You, you call you call back here and see how the see how the snow's doing. Sure, we have somebody that watches our place and things <laughs> like that. And so yeah, if the if it snows too heavy, we're staying away. And how long have you been going down to Georgia to kind of extend what you do with the dogs like that? It's this is about our eighth year. I okay. think this will be our eighth year coming up. I mean, we preceded that by three years in Tennessee, four years in Oklahoma, and many years in Texas. Yeah, and you've been you've been running bird dogs for a long time. Yep, uh, I got my first bird dog in 1979, and but didn't really get the bug until about '87, and then then I started working and buying bird dogs, no well, doubt. And when was Northwoods Bird Dogs established? I think we covered a lot of this stuff in our other conversation, but yeah, 2003 is when we. I was still working as a software developer and doing this on the side part time, and then we started the put the website up and started the business, and then went full time in 2005. Yeah, talking about. It makes me think like we're talking about how much has changed in, or, or has gone on in the last two years. What, When you think back to the early days of Northwoods Bird Dogs, like what things, if any significant things are different or have changed since that time? You know, when you start out, you're kind of doing whatever, you're kind of training whatever dog anybody will send you sure. to make yeah. some money. So we trained a lot of different breeds starting out on wild birds and pigeon work and basic yard work um, and slowly have transitioned away from working anything but pretty much setters and pointers and now even more recently just our setters um and used to be one thing that's interesting is that i used to have a two-month training program to, to teach dogs to be steady on birds you know basically stay to wing and shot blank pistol on a pigeons and now in the last three years we get the same thing done in one month and i used to say wow i'm getting to be a really good trainer <laughs> and then i realized i'm only working with the dogs we breed which are very instinctive and the old saying goes, a good, a good dog will make a trainer look good. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, as you all know, like I, I haven't been around this stuff nearly as long as, as you have. And, you know, I'm here today, which is kind of a fun trip down here. I just got to meet some seven-week-old puppies, one of which will be coming home with me a week from today, which is very exciting. And I'm back here, and I've mentioned this on the podcast, I'm back here getting dog number two. And I'm, I'm really excited to just go at it again with six years of experience. And I mean, how much have I picked up in the last six years? It's, you stretch that over time, decades for, for how you've been doing it. And, and then over that course of time, you know, dogs are changing and tactics and techniques are changing. I mean, it's just, it seems to be very dynamic. And one of the things that I've liked to say is the dog I'm working with today is definitely not the dog that you were working with when you started out with, you know, and that's, and it makes, it's almost like hitting the easy button. Like I feel like it makes my job easy, almost too easy to a certain extent. <laughs> well, it's, um, we, I never got into this to be a dog breeder. Yeah. I mean, when I started out field trialing, probably in the late eighties, early nineties, I just wanted really good dogs. And I bought dogs out of the best breedings, you know, champion this, the champion that all around the country. And I mean, they'd come in, they just wouldn't be that good of a dog. And I had this old dog called Spring Garden Tollway I bought from Jack LeClaire, who had a kennel around here, Spring Garden Kennels years ago. And he was a renegade, runoff, deer chaser, but he had more heart and more desire than any dog I've seen since. And I didn't really, really want to breed him. And then I found this female, same thing. It just came from Jack LeClaire. And she was the opposite of him. She was real biddable, had a lot of point, real natural instinct, good backer, didn't run real big. And we just finally said, let's, let's just see what happens. Yep. 
And we bred that litter, and out of that litter came not our first grouse champion, but our first setters, which was a dog called Blue Streak and Blue Smoke. And um, Blue Streak ended up being one of the better grouse dogs probably ever, um, as far as she won all over, and she won big trials, the Grand National Grouse Championship, when she was 10 and a half years old, 81 dogs. She was in the first brace, you know, waited seven days, and she's only one dog did better than her. I mean, it, wow. So, and that kind of got us into the breeding game, I thought. Is that luck? Well, our next litter out of the same mother produced another grouse champion owned by Scott Anderson, who's an amateur, a Rolling Stone. She won some great big grouse trials in Minnesota and Michigan. And this dog we had called Blue Chief, who never did win, but was a very natural bird dog I used for guiding a lot. And a lot of people bred to him, and he produced winners. And it just kind of went on from there. Um, I, I think we may have covered some of this, but I do want to talk a little bit about kind of the Northwoods, what you're looking for in your dogs and your breeding program, and maybe leaning on... You know, you've kind of transitioned to training a lot of your own dogs and, and you're getting stuff done easy And there. You know, I can speak from experience as far as, you know, my dog being, he was handled by a total amateur and just things came to him so naturally. I mean, there was, there was very little that I needed to, you know, I don't know that I put anything into the, into the dog other than just making him a good citizen around the house and giving him that exposure, you know, putting him, putting him in the places that he needed to be. And he's now contacted hundreds thousands of birds i don't know in the last six years and he all the natural instincts were there and we ran them we ran them today and he pointed a couple of pigeons like he'd, he'd done it before and we talked about how you know that's they figured that out pretty quick and i don't do i don't do a lot of training on pigeons because that's usually what i see you know every time every time i do that but every every fall i know we're going to hit the woods and he's dependable but talk about what kind of makes up if you can say it, what is an ideal dog? What are you looking for in a, in a grouse dog? Mm-hmm. Kind of what I'm looking for in a grouse dog, I'm looking for in any kind of a bird dog, really. I mean, our dogs have excelled on the bobwhite quail and sharp-tailed grouse and chuckers and kind of anywhere there's wild birds. Our dogs have went and done a pretty good job. Arizona and the Merns and the Gambles and you name it. But, um, I mean, I'm looking for a dog just in general you shouldn't have to be a great dog trainer to have a good bird dog, but you do need to have access to birds, yeah. wild birds in particular. And so I'm looking for a dog that you don't need to train a lot, that you just take hunting. You make a buddy out of it. Like Nick said, you teach it kind of your basics to be a good citizen. And then you just go hunting. And the instinct should be there, you know. Um, you know, if you want to talk more details physically, yeah, I want a dog that's kind of built a certain way, maybe let's call females 40 pounds, males 50 pounds. I like a, a real nice, efficient gait. I like a dog that carries itself high as a high head and a high tail. And the tail can be a knit. I like a high tail, but I don't like a moving tail. Yep. Something that kind of more side to side that gets beat up. I don't want that's real excitable. Kind of, so that's the physical part of it. I want them to you know, have a lot of natural point, not too much point, but enough point. Um, I like to be natural backers. If you can get a retrieve that's fairly natural, that's great. A lot of that can be worked on, you know, be trained into them, not just through a force method, but just through a coercion, even just in a yard situation. Mentally, I want a calm dog. Yeah. I want one that's, when I put my hands on him, he doesn't get excited. He gets calm. And a part of that is environment too. Some people get real excited around their dog and they're petting them real fast and their dog gets excited, but I don't do that. When I put my hands on the dog. It's a slow stroke on the dog and a good boy. Um, I wanted to be calm and that calmness. If they have that kind of calmness, they have that calmness around game too. You know, they're not real nervous around birds. Like they're going to jump in at any point. They, yeah. they want to point the bird. They're confident standing there. I mean, 
These bird dogs love the smell of a live bird. They just love to stand there and smell it. It's a hard thing to grasp because so many people say, oh, you got to kill these birds for them. And it makes, I've had dogs that, great dogs that would die to find a bird that would go through a barbed wire fence and get completely cut up on a 90 degree day and you kill the bird and they sniff it and go on. I mean, they love the smell of a live bird. So on that, uh, I definitely, we're going to talk about the calmness thing. Cause that's something that I've been asking you about, but on the, on the point thing, I think that's a little bit of an interesting dynamic. You said, you know, you want point, but not too much. Can you explain, can you explain a little bit about like what might be too much and kind of what that's indicating in a dog? Mm-hmm. Too much point is when the dog wants to point on any little bit of scent. Okay. They don't really, maybe there was a bird there a minute ago. Maybe there was a bird there an hour ago or three hours ago. And they want to point and point hard on that. And they don't want to move. And part of that can be an exposure thing. I mean, there's no perfect dog. You're going to, if you look at the bird dogs, as far as point, you're going to say on one end of the spectrum is a dog that stands there for a thousand one and in on the bird. And on the other end of the spectrum is going to be the dog that I'm talking about young dogs now that stands there and just will not move. I've had puppies that have pointed a bird and I've stood because I want the dog to move in on the bird when it's a puppy. I want it to be bold enough to want to get its mouth on the bird, even if it takes its mouth off and leaves right away. But I've stood there and watched puppies point. A pointer down in Georgia last year, a litter, I remember in particular. I mean, seven, eight minutes. This dog doesn't know, whoa, nothing. It's just standing there on point. (laughs) And that's a little too much point. It's a little easier. If you got to err, I say you err on a little less point because you can always stand the dog back. But it's real hard to get a dog to go that doesn't want a point or that wants the point too much. Okay. Um, Circling back to the head of this conversation where I asked you this question, I'm, I'm curious, talking about you want a dog, you want to get the best genetics that you can, right? And versus a dog that is not so good, and then over here you've got a dog that is good. Talk about the role that those, I mean, I think genetics is one of those things you say it and people, for the most part, understand it. But talk about what what kind of a role the genetics are playing in giving you that that best, you know, the biggest head start you can get. Yeah. Um, I mean, it makes a huge difference. I mean, as we were talking with earlier, I mean, they, they don't do a lot of studies on dogs because there's not a lot of money in there, but they did a, a study on racehorses um, and determined that like 38% of the performance on the track was through genetics and the rest was through the training and the nutrition and everything. And we've all heard this and that's certainly true. The biggest difference is if you've got a dog that's super genetically talented it just doesn't take the effort. You know, you can take a dog that's way less genetically talented if you hunt a lot and you have time to train a lot and you can turn them into something, but it takes a lot of effort. And as we talked earlier, I mean, I've heard Tom Dawkins was famous to say, and I've heard him, I use this quote a lot. And the guy says, I'm talking to somebody and they say, well, I don't hunt that much. I don't need a real good dog. And I say, no, if you don't hunt much, you need a really good dog, you know? So Genetics makes a huge difference. It just it makes your job easier. Everything about it is you want the best genetics you can get. And yeah, environment and nutrition and all the life experiences, yep, makes a huge difference too. Yep. But you want the best genetics you can buy. Yep. Well, we dove right in talking about dogs and, and ideal grouse dogs. But I was curious to talk about, you know, you mentioned field trialing, and that's kind of what sort of led you into this. And I know that's played various roles in your dogs and the development of the dogs. What what are you doing with trials right now? This spring, I know you ran some trials. Like, what role do they play in your development or, you know, evaluation, I guess I, I should say, at this point in time? Mm-hmm. I mean, field trials, are, we've 
pretty well minimized them at this point. The one trial we ran in was more of a fun trial than anything. And I, it's nice to get out and just see different dogs. I mean, the thing I, I would say that field trials gave me was a foundation what a really good dog is. I yeah. mean, when you could go to a wild, now I was talking, I'm talking about rough, rough grouse field trials, wild bird field trials, and you can go to a place and watch 20, 40, 60, 80 dogs run yep. on, on same, you know, on similar, similar kind of a courses, you get to see the differences in them. And you realize that, you know what, some dogs, no matter what time of day they draw, what brace they draw, who the handler is, they always come up with a bird and they always do things right. And you go, that's not just luck. And a lot of these are with pro trainers. And now amateurs are, can be just as good, don't get me wrong. But amateur, people think of it just the opposite. They think, oh, a pro trainer's got all this time. He can really train a dog. A pro trainer's got a lot of dogs. And yeah. all the time gets divided up. A good amateur with his one or two dogs can go out there and put his dog into a lot more birds and be just as competitive. Sure. No doubt about it. But I think, again, but the, what the trials gave me was a foundation of what is a really good dog and high standards that it's not just the dog that points all the birds, but it's the dog that handles easy and yet covers a whole bunch of ground. The one that moves easily and efficiently, that's just beautiful to watch between birds. And I think without that, we wouldn't have the same dogs we have today. There's no doubt. Yeah. Yeah. You and I, we chat a lot about just kind of the mystery behind wild birds, right? Like wild birds are not it's it's not a controlled experiment. It's an uncontrolled experiment. Wild birds are wild birds, and there's there is a lot of mystery to it. And the only way you can peel back the layers and uncover that is just by continuing to see dogs run wild birds. And you can you can't connect all the dots at once, but you can fill in a, fill in a hole there, fill in a hole there, and you start to piece the puzzle together. And speaking from my own personal experience, where I I had very little experience around bird dogs and seeing that i've got a lot more now but again just over time thinking about how that builds up how much better you are at reading dogs and being able to put the pieces together in a in a setting where you don't always know what's going on because wild birds are tricky right and that's just what we were talking about with a with the pointing earlier i mean you don't know if your dog pointed was there a bird there Mm -hmm. you know is there a bird there i mean yeah, if it's a planted bird, you can say, yeah, I know there's a bird there. But if it's a wild bird, you're trusting your dog. Yeah. He says there's a bird there. Okay, I'm going to go look. And, um, yeah, it's a, it's a whole different game than any kind of put-out bird thing, any planted bird thing. It's not even in the same league. It would be like the astronauts training weightlessness in a hot air balloon. Yeah. You know, instead yeah. of a <laughs> instead of a gravity chamber. You know, no. It's Yeah, you're weightless in both of them, but <laughs> yeah. it's very different. Yeah. Well, you spend your you spend your falls before you head down to Georgia, pretty much in Minnesota and Wisconsin in the rough grouse and and woodcock woods. How was last year's rough grouse season from your experience? What did you see? You know, I got a, a lot of good reports from people, but and, but in the areas I happened to be in, it wasn't a great grouse year. It was real wet, and there was a lot of woodcock. You know, and I hate to say it, but I mean, I was even looking for woodcock cover, which typically when I'm grouse hunting. I'm not looking for that young stuff. I'm yeah. looking for an older aspen forest with a good understory of hazel and dogwood and, and falling down logs, not a bare floor, things like that. And uh, it really wasn't that good for me. Now, again, I know there were areas that were really good. I just wasn't able to get there. Yeah. Yeah. So what about when you, when you went over to Wisconsin, did you see anything a little bit different over there? Wisconsin was better for me. Eastern Wisconsin, I would say, yeah. was a lot better than, you know, Western Wisconsin. 
typically it has been the last few years I've been over there. I don't know if there is a West Nile thing and it's a mosquito population or whatever. I mean, they seem to be spotty enough from the clients that I talk to that there's something going on. Yeah. You know, and maybe it's a mosquito habitat or a variety of mosquito. I don't know. Now, we're at a good dry year this year. I know we don't have as many mosquitoes here. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see. I'm I'm seeing, I've seen a few broods this year. I'm I'm becoming optimistic. Yeah. Do you do, do you do on that note, do you do any, any tracking of flushes or anything for you personally or for the dogs to try to keep track of that at all? Yeah. I mean, I, I do, I keep track of flushes. Okay. Um, I don't really, and I keep track of the dogs and how many birds they point and how long I run them, but I don't, and I, but mostly I go by flush count and my flush count really is more of a year to year yardstick, you know, yep, maybe yep. it wasn't pointed, maybe it flushed wild or whatever, but it was out there. Yep. It was, it, w- it was an opportunity. So I keep track of those, you yep. know, I don't keep a log anymore or anything like that, but I, I do keep those few stats. Yeah. Well, like you, I've been, I've definitely been hearing some uh, optimistic reports, people seeing broods and like we were kind of joking. I mean, I, anybody that sees a brood this time of year kind of, they, they say it, you know, and nobody goes out and drives their own and says, well, I didn't see a brood. You know, <laughs> they tell you about it when they see it. So, but I do think the conditions were pretty good. So I'm hopeful we'll, we'll see what happens. And we are kind of, we're at that point where we should be at a peak for this region of the country. So we'll, uh, we'll have to see what happens, but I'm definitely excited, but I've got, before I start thinking too much about rough grouse, I kind of have puppies on my mind. <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's a pen full of seven week old puppies over here and wanted to talk to you about puppies and kind of how we're approaching it so at, at seven weeks actually let's let's back up because i want to talk about the super puppy exercises and that's something that i wasn't real familiar with it until i'm pretty sure you wrote about it on your blog and i know you've talked about it i just read about it again in another book that i'm reading tell me a little bit about what those super puppy exercises are and what they're accomplishing well, the super puppy exercises is something you do in a during a real formative stage. Like I think it's day through day two through day eighteen or three through eighteen. I I got a little spreadsheet. I just plug in the birthday and tells me when I do all this yeah, stuff. But yeah. it's right in that ballpark. Um, and when you do five exercises, you basically hold the puppy right side up vertically or on its back, upside down. Then you put you take a Q-tip and you rub it in the between its pads on its toes. Yeah. And then you take a cold cloth and put it on their belly. And basically, and these are all just five seconds each. Five seconds, okay. Right. Yeah. It's there, the theory being that it's, it places a, a little bit of stress on the puppy, yeah. which makes them, their body more able to handle stress and things like that down the road. Kind of like when you lift a lot of weights and you stress a muscle, the muscle comes back stronger yep. from the stresses. And yeah, you can't prove that that works because you can't do it on a puppy and not do it on a puppy, but it takes so little time. Right. And if nothing else, you're picking a puppy up. Yeah. And this is when, I mean, their eyes aren't open yet. You know, really they can smell and that's about it when you start. By the time you quit, I'm not sure their ears are open yet because that happens more like 18, 20 days, I think. But their eyes are open and things like that. But um, we're believers in it. Yeah. When did you start doing it? Um, boy, we've been doing it for maybe 10 years. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Yep. The way you describe it is very, very like almost exactly the way that I read it in this book that I was reading recently. And, and they drew some, or I think they referenced like military, like this was a military yeah, it is. thing. That's, it started in the military yeah. Yeah, for, for service bomb dogs, dogs and yep. service dogs. Yeah. Yep. And, and they alluded to the fact that these super puppy exercises led to dogs that were better able to handle stress. Cause you gave them that micro stress early 
And they actually mentioned the dogs having better cognitive abilities, like being well-adjusted and having better cognitive abilities versus a dog that did not go through those exercises. And so it obviously sounds great. And like you said, as a breeder, it's so easy to do. Why not do it? Exactly. And I mean, you know, muscle movement helps your brain develop, right? So that's why exercise. So even when you're picking that puppy up and he's maybe struggling a little bit, I mean, all these things are helping those neurons grow and any kind of anything you can do with a puppy that makes it think or or in a new environment or see something new. I mean, they're little sponges. Yeah. I mean, when you watch them as they mature, they just, any little thing new you put in that whelping nest when they, once their eyes open, I mean, they will crawl over there. Yeah. So fast forwarding a little bit, then we'll go, let's say we're, you know, at that day 20 where the super puppy exercises are done. Like walk me through a little bit about the time period before a guy like me comes along and picks up the puppy at eight weeks. What, what are you doing with the puppies on a daily basis? What are their, what does their routine look like? Pretty much from the time you're done with a super puppy, you know, they're pretty much just on the mother's milk and the mother cleans up with them for about three weeks. And so there comes a, by the time the super puppy's done, there's about a week lull where, yeah, we pick them up every day, but we don't really do a lot more with them at that stage. You know, they're, they're not very mobile yet. You know, they're maybe starting at the end of that three weeks, they're starting to crawl out to the outside of the nest and go to the bathroom and the mother's still cleaning up. And then about the time, they say three and a half weeks, they start going outside of the kennel here and things like that. They're starting to be a lot more mobile. Then we'll start going in there and sit with them and we'll bring a variety of toys and mm-hmm. crunchy water bottles and things that make noise and squeaky things. And we just start sitting with them probably for a week. And then we start taking them outside in the grass. And we, again, we bring out all these toys and we just let them crawl all over us and kind of do whatever they want yeah. to build the boldness. And then we just start taking them out every day. And probably by the fourth week, we got a puppy pen that you saw built up out yep. there that we put them in for a few hours every day. It's maybe 20 by six or eight or something like yep. that. And it's got a couple of crates in it and places in the shade. And we put a lot of ropes with things hanging from them, just things to give the puppies something to do that, that intrigues them, mm-hmm. you know, that yep. stimulates them, you know, and it's amazing. Again, I mean, you can just throw an old bucket in there and they will look at that bucket and roll over that bucket and run in that <laughs> bucket. Yep. And it's like, they're just... They just want to learn. I mean, the more, one thing I've, more I've been around dogs, they're so smart and they're not these, these tools. Like when someone says, well, train a dog and, and you treat it like this robotic dog. No, they're all different. They're all thinking through things. I mean, and you see it when you see these little puppies as the light switch comes on and they learn things, it's incredible. Yeah. And that's, so then, then we take them for walks around the place, kind of leading up to the thing. They might get walked twice a week or yeah. twice a day. I mean. Um, and in fact, we try to walk them enough. So they don't even like to go to the bathroom in the kennel as, you, as I was telling yep, you about there. Yep. I mean, they'll eat and hold it for two hours and I let them out and take them for a walk around the kennel where they can go poop out there and stuff. And I mean, they learn to be really clean. Um, and so then that's what we do. I mean, I might, and when they get to be like that seventh week, we shot a bird for one of the training dogs a day and we take that bird and throw it in the grass for those little puppies and they all go in on it and smell it. And yep. one of them tries to drag it around. And I mean, it's, you yep. know, so any new experience for puppies that you can give them that doesn't traumatize them is a, is a plus. Right. And extra physical exercise develops the brain, all that muscle coordination and all those things. I mean, you can't do too much with a puppy except when he wants to sleep, let him sleep. Yeah. Yeah. Let, let him sleep. Yeah. It's almost looking like I might take a pup home next week. That's already crate trained and potty trained. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I won't cross my fingers though. <laughs> we did start that this year. We talked about that. I'd like to say something about that. I mean, yeah. this is the first year we used to normally when, like I said, about three and a half weeks, the mother kind of stops cleaning up after the puppies, and we have a big whelp box. It's maybe 
four by four with a heating whelp nest. And, and the puppies will start going on the edge of that box, going to the bathroom. Well, the mother cleans up for a while. It used to be we just would fill that box with wood shavings and let them go wherever they want. And every day we'd clean it out. Well, I, I read on the internet and we had a guy last year that did it with a puppy, a litter in his house. They, he put a little, like a litter box in the nest. So what I do is I made a litter box that was the length of the box, maybe eight inches wide. The, when I read on the internet, they said, you want it big enough so all the puppies can get in there at once. Because sure. when they wake up, they all want to go to the bathroom. And I put just wood shavings in there and, a, and a, just a plastic sheet bottom. And it was amazing that in three or four days, those puppies would climb over that inch little thing and go in there and go to the bathroom. Some would get halfway in there and then pee on the outside of it, but they're making an effort. <laughs> yeah, they were. You know? yep. In their own minds, they were right. in it, basically. And it cut way down on our work. You know, you'd have to clean that out every day because they're keeping most of the box completely clean. Yeah. And I'd leave a little bit in there every day so it smelled enough that they'd know they should go in there. Sure. And then I just, yeah. when we opened the whelping box, I moved that box out kind of between the whelping box and the door. And then after a few days of that, I just took that away and they went a little bit inside, on, not in their nest, but on the concrete floor. But in a few days, they were going outside and it was the slickest thing. And we did that with a second litter too. And I mean, I've seen guys raise litters on wire so that the puppies can stay clean, but they don't learn anything there. Yeah. Here, these puppies were learning from the get-go to go to the bathroom in a certain spot and don't soil where you sleep and eat. Yeah. And it, another learning process for the pups. I mean, I thought, hey, this is great. Yeah. Yeah. In theory, you could be making my job easier. And like we said, you, you have the pen out there. When I came up, all the puppies are in this. It's a big pen. Like they could go to the bathroom in there if they wanted they probably were at some point, but when we let them out to go for the run, they were all basically eliminating and going to the bathroom outside of that pen. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's, mm-hmm. that's kind of working. They want to be clean. Give them the opportunity. I mean, they're smart yeah. animals and you know, if, if they have a choice, they'll be clean. Yeah. All right. So then we're seven weeks. Is there anything else you're doing in that time period bef- before the clients or customers pick up their dogs as far as developing other than just trying to get them as you know, as much stimulation within possible, taking them for walks, doing that sort of thing. Anything else you're working on, or is that is that about it? Uh, the only other thing we do is we do we do kind of crate train them this last week. Okay. Um, I get about we'll just we'll start out for like probably starting tomorrow maybe even, but um, for two or three days we'll put two in each crate, and then I'll do this every day, and then for two or three days we'll put one in every crate, so that by the time they go they've all been and they. Even though we have a crates in their puppy pen, they can run in and out. But when that door shuts, yeah, um, they'll put up a they put up a pretty good hassle. And usually, what I do is keep them in there long enough. And some are real short. If as soon as they quiet down, and a lot of them will go to sleep. But as soon as they quiet down, even if they just sit there and look at me, you know, it's still going to take 20 minutes. Then I'll let them out. You know, um, so I just want to learn. You be quiet and calm in the crate, and yep. you get to go. And it's I won't say they're crate trained, but they've certainly been introduced to it. Yeah, it's an introduction, and it yeah. it's got to make it a little easier. That and they don't want to go where they sleep. I mean, it's got to be a heck of a start. Yeah. So then eight weeks comes along. A pup comes home with me. The others go with the other ones. You keep a pup. Is that when, when Jerry starts the real training? Oh, when, when all the other ones are gone? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, you could start it earlier, I'm sure. And I've seen articles of people actually training dogs, puppies to high five in the litter box. Sure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But what I've started doing, this will be our third year. We do marker training with a clicker. I start that as soon as the puppies go at eight weeks. And, yeah. um, you can, you know, you can Google this and look up the basics, but you basically teach the dog that a click means a treat yep. and it's a positive reinforcement. And you start that out by just clicking and give them a little treat, clicking and give them a little treat. And then, and then what I'll do in the next, over the next two or three weeks, I'll teach them to go in a kennel, to sit and go on a bed all through the clicking. And, yep. um, 
I used to just lure them in with it. You know, I'd put the dog in front of the crate and throw a treat in and the dog would follow it and you'd say kennel, right? And that's, that worked, but the dog doesn't think about it. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's following a lure, but this clicker training, you have to wait for the behavior to happen. So once he knows a click means a treat, you put that open crate there and kind of wait. Maybe you try to rig it up so he goes in there somehow. Maybe I even put a treat at the beginning, way at the back of the creep. But as soon as he goes in there, I click. And that puppy, and then I, he runs out even. It doesn't matter. I give him a treat. A lot yep. of times I'm right there to treat him right in the crate. Yep. But it's amazing that after a little bit, after he, after a few, I'm just talking two or three sessions of that, that puppy will look, I'll let him in the kennel room where we are right now where I do that. And the puppy will see the crate over there, look up at me, Think about it, and I mean, running that crate like it's going to take the back end out of yeah. it. <laughs> and I click and think, that puppy thought about it. He said, that puppy's not just saying, I'm going to go in here because he's throwing something in here. He's, he looks at me and he said, what do I got to do to make that guy give me a treat? Yep. And that is a, a valuable lesson right there. That dog is, you're teaching that dog how to figure out to do things to get a reward. Yeah. And that reward down the road might be a good boy or a pet. It won't always be a treat. Mm -hmm. But that is a that is a great foundation to training. And and for house manners, that clicker training is a great way to start it out. It's not the end-all, be-all. It's a great way to have them learn what you want. You're still going to have to reinforce it yep. at some point, yep. but it's incredible. And I mean, the, to watch that little brain turn on in those puppies is, I'm always amazed. Yeah. Yeah. That, I definitely did a fair bit of reading on clicker training even six years ago when I got Hartley and I worked, I worked with him, not a, not a ton, but I did some, and it was very clear that they figured that out very quickly. And for folks that haven't read about, it, I won't try to get into all the details, but yeah, you're, you're marking the behavior with the clicker and then eventually, but the dog is like you said, it's thinking and it's making decisions with a little bit of a coaxing and then you mark when it does a good job and they, they come around to that quickly. So I'm going to work, I'm going to work on that with the, with the next puppy. You're doing it on the bed. Place. 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 Yep. yep. In theory, yep, a raised platform. Get them yep. on a place in a crate is obviously makes sense. Do you do any, anything else like as far as like trying to get the pups to stand still uh like on a wool board or anything like that or you know not yet i've fooled with that i i use sit and it's so it's such a natural thing and, and when they sit they're looking right up in your eyes and yeah. i think that that eye contact is a big deal yeah um i've started with and i've, I've read about people doing wool, but honestly the way we teach them wool is mostly with birds and you saw it today with the e-collar on their flank and it's not really st you're not shocking them you're just guiding them into the right behavior mm -hmm. it happens so easily yep that it's not worth it to re to really work on woe at that level. And it's not even needed at that point. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah, people can, and they can do it with the food and stuff like that, but you really don't need to do it that young, yeah. you know? And I, I discourage people. I said, I don't want your puppy in its first hunting season to know woe. Let it just do what it does. Yeah. Um, how much do you, how much do you think about eye contact when you're working with these young dogs and do, are you doing anything to try to get more of it or acknowledge it or, cause I remember reading a little bit about that mm -hmm. and I, I wondered if I should, should have done that more, but how do you think about that? No, your dog, I saw him, he makes good eye contact I, when you brought him over today, but yeah. the, the sitting do it. I mean, if you, you don't need to really work on a lot. If you get, if you're working with that clicking and the, and the treat and they're, they're, they know you're part of the equation. Yeah. You actually supply the reward. They will look at you. Yeah. And that's the one thing I like about sit is when I, when they, after when they just sit at first, I click, but after that, I don't click until they look right in my eyes. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, and that'll, and that just comes along real fast, yeah. you know, and they're just learning to read you. They know dogs look at each other's eyes. They yeah. look, you know, dogs are so perceptive. Yeah. I think folks have probably seen this, you know, like a dog 
Like if a dog is excited and he's not looking at you, he's looking behind you. He's looking for what's next. But if as soon as they come to you, they they calm down, you know, because then right. they're looking to you for what's next. So I think that's an important thing to think about. But they do want to key off, key off you. Yeah, yeah. They they you know dogs want attention. I mean. Now, not in a hunting field. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they want a they want a bird, but yeah. any other situation, they want attention. I mean, the best thing you can do is pet a dog, or even just looking at them, you know, and giving them eye contact and saying a kind word to them. They just they they'll do a lot for that. Yeah, I mean, they really will. Yeah. They just crave it, and it's something you can use as a valuable training tool. You know, I mean, if you're sitting in the house and you're constantly giving your dog attention and pets, I mean, he'd have to earn them. You're mm-hmm. wasting a heck of a resource there. You yep. can you can minimize some of that. They don't need all that attention. You know, our dogs live in kennels, and yet I challenge anybody. I mean, you go up and down this kennel, and they'll all look at you as you walk by, and they'll stand you, and they want attention. You know, yep. they, it's not like they need attention 24 hours a day. They just need a certain amount. Yeah. Let's talk about the calm calm thing a little bit because that is – you mentioned it earlier. You talked about it a little bit. It's in – sure, it sounds great. I want a calm dog, right? But I also think it's – it's an important thing in a sense where a calm dog is, is one that's listening. It's what I was talking about with the eye contact, right? If your dog is calm and they're looking at you, they're listening versus a dog that's excited, dancing around on its paws. So talk about the importance of it a little bit. And then let's talk about not necessarily how you develop it, but the things that you're mindful of to try to coax out the calmest behavior mm-hmm. in your dogs. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's something we kind of breed for too. I mean, if, mm-hmm. even though they don't all live in the house, I don't want a dog that's bouncing off the walls in the kennel, and I don't care if it's the best field dog in the whole world. Yep. If I can't, if I'm not happy being around that dog every day, it's not something I want to reproduce. Yep. Not, not that that's a gimme. There could be some, unless we've raised them, it could be some environment. It's hard to say, but if we raised them. But I, most of our dogs have a very calm demeanor, and they have, when they come up to you, they are fairly still. And again, and, and to enhance that, I don't ever say, oh, good boy, good boy, good puppy, good puppy. Now, I might, when little puppies come and I call them, I get excited. But yeah. when I get them down to, like I said, I'm working with my puppy. When they come over, I, I'll hold them with one hand if I, you know, a little bit. And I'll just stroke their back, you know. Yeah. Like we wrote a blog about it one time ago. You don't pet or pat a dog. You stroke a dog. Yep. You know, you stroke their their fur. And that's a calming thing to the dog. And then I'll stroke them like that and then hold them for a little bit and then I'll give them a release thing and then boom, they can go. Yeah. You know, and that calmness, it comes through in everything. You know, you, you want a dog that, that really can be calm. Now, you read the old dog books and they all talk about nervous energy. Bob Whaley talks about nervous energy. I read these old books called The Setter. They all talk about nervous energy in these field trial dogs. And there's a certain amount. As, as something that was desirable? That was very desirable. Okay. Now, part of me says... Even though Bob Whaley talked about Snakefoot, how he would spin in the kennel and he liked him so much because he had so much nervous energy. I personally don't want anything of my dog nervous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I want him to have energy. But there is a, something about a little bit more excitable dog, even though he has an off switch, might translate to a little bit more dog in the field. Sure. You, know, you, you're not, you get that dog that just lays around. I'm not saying they can't be, but um, let me back up on that. You really want a dog that can be calm. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, and the calmer, yeah. the better. And I think... The older they get, the calmer they get too. You know, young dogs have a lot of energy for short periods of time. Yeah. So yeah. you want a dog that has a genetic calmness, and then you want to enhance that calmness by handling the dog right and not exciting the dog and not rolling him over and rubbing his belly. And like, oh, no, no, no. You know, you really want the dog to, when you have your hands on him, you want him to be 
standing there, sitting there calm. Yeah. It's a fine line, but it's, it's like, we want it all, right? We want the dog that goes out and hunts his heart out. And then you want the dog to come home and lie down and be quiet all day. That's, that's the best of both worlds. I think, I think a lot of breeders have gotten to a point that's pretty darn close to that. You know, the dogs that have the on off switch, I would say that my dog definitely has that, you know, even if I, even if he's somewhat of a reflection of my, me being a first time trainer and me being a little bit excitable and nervous about certain things, like he's, he had so much calmness in him that, you know, he's overcome any, any of that stuff. So, and I'll tell you, like, I really enjoy having a dog that he hunts the way that he does, but he acts the way that he does around the house. I mean, who wouldn't want that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's, that's cool. I do think keeping an eye on when the dog's in, you don't let him out of the crate when he's making noise. You know, there's just certain things like that where all it takes is a little bit of upfront awareness as the trainer, as the handler to avoid so much down the road hassle and, and pain. In, mm-hmm. in those things. And those are really important. And I was, I like to bring them up cause I went through all that and I did an okay job, but obviously we're always trying to get better, right? <laughs> you did a good job. But the one thing people that I like to add about that is, you know, people say, well, I'm, when he gets a little older, I'm going to train him. Well, you're always training him. Yeah. Every minute you spend with that dog, you're training it. Yeah. So you might as well train it a little at a time. And the dog, if you're training all the time, the dog doesn't know when you're training and when you're not training. Yeah. Like you said, simple thing is not letting them out at the crate until they're quiet. The other thing is you can start right off the bat is not letting them out the crate when you open the door. Yep. Just bang that door shut on them a few times and slowly until the door's open and you they don't come out until you tell them to come out. And that not only does that make things a lot nicer when you're loading on your dog, but it, you put some discipline in that dog and he knows, okay, I got to do this. You know, I got to do this to go have my fun. It's a trade-off. He, the dog says, that's fine. Yep. But, but if you didn't give him that rule... He's just going to come barging out and say, I'm going to have fun anyhow. Yeah. So yep. we can, you can always give a reward for a be- piece of behavior. Yeah. So it's, you're always training. Yeah. Training can be kind of a loaded word too, because a lot of times you say training and you envision pigeons and launchers and dummies and everything, but it's all, you know, it's everything. Everything you do with your dog mm-hmm. is, you know, it's a vote for that activity and you're, you're mm-hmm. setting the stage for what's going to happen next time. So you can be mindful of that stuff and pay attention to it and always develop and improve. And we talked about the word coaching earlier. Mm-hmm. How coaching is sometimes a better word for for developing these dogs and you're just coaching them to use what they have use the skills and the talent and the mm-hmm. everything they got inside them to use it better yep and if you see something that you know if you start training a dog the other thing that if a dog irritates you in any way that's a clue to saying i need to do something about this yeah. okay you shouldn't have to go through every day the dog running out the door on you or something or just jumping up or doing something just fix it and then you'll be happier and the dog will be happier because when, when you have anxiety or you, don't, or you feel nervous about something, the dog reflects that nervousness because yep. he doesn't know what you want because yep. so, you just let him do whatever he wants. If you show him what you want, reward him for what you want, I don't say punish, but try to um, teach him to not do the things you don't want, yeah. it'll all be a better relationship. Yeah. You're diagnosing the situation. Is there, I imagine that's going to, you know, that's going to vary based on what the dog is doing, but is there any way that you would go about like trying to, okay, dog's doing this. I don't want him to do this. How am I going to take a step back and change our routine or do something differently? Just what you said. I mean, maybe you got to do the routine a little different. Maybe you need to set the dog up in a situation where you have more control over what's happening to, to manipulate the behavior. I mean, and sometimes it can be Negative reinforcement. I mean, and people always wonder, well, they'll say, well, how much, you know? And I say, I give the horse trainer's answer as little as possible, but as much as necessary. Some dogs you say, quit, quit. And they stop. Other dogs you say, quit, quit. And you can say quit louder. They don't. Some dogs you might have to really get after, but 
whatever it takes, you got to stop it. And every dog's different. You always start at the least and work up to whatever it takes. Yeah. And some people struggle, I think, in that, you know. Yeah. But if you start easy and you just build up, the dog will tell you when you got it right. Right. Otherwise, the problem's either just going to straight up persist or it's going to get worse and probably turn into something else. It'll only get worse, because yeah. especially when the dog figures that he's got the total control over everything. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a hierarchy there, and he needs to know that. It's, I don't want to call it master-servant, but it's more like leader-follower. Yeah, yeah. Oh. And you want you want to be the kind of leader that the dog wants to follow. Yeah. And happily. So, yeah, good stuff. Well, let's, I want to transition a, a little bit into the first hunting season. And even before we get there, we had a, that dog today was what, five months old, mm-hmm. maybe we had mm-hmm. a dog that was five months old, brought him out, had pigeons on the ground and that dog was pointing. We were flushing birds in front of it. So it had already done, it had already been introduced to birds. Talk about how do you do introduction to birds? Yeah, usually I do. I use pigeons for everything. I start out by, if I get a puppy, like let's say, if it comes in for training, I usually don't like them before five months. But my dogs, my young puppies, I'll take them for walks and I'll start carrying pigeons and throwing them. And I maybe rub them in the grass a little bit when the puppies aren't around me and get them over there to smell a scent. And then I'll throw a bird. And once they show desire to want to chase it, then I can go to start planting birds. And as we, as I showed you, I have these releasers, which aren't launchers. They don't throw the bird up. They just open up. The top opens up and the pigeon comes out naturally. And I'll start out with that. Um, if a dog comes in for training, I do a similar thing. I'll just take it for walks and throw pigeons. And, and until they, we call it the bird and gun intro, and it's exactly in that order. Mm-hmm. Okay. They need to be birdy and excited about birds and want to chase birds before we introduce the gun. And so what I'll do is I'll throw pigeons for the puppy until it, until it shows me it wants to really chase them. And then I'll start planting them in these releasers and let them, whether they point them or whatever, I just open them up and let them chase the pigeons and encourage them to chase the pigeons. Yep. And once they have good chase, then I'll start shooting a 22 blank as they're chasing them. Okay. Okay. Yep. And then I'll start, I'll do that over and over while I'm tossing the pigeon. Whenever they're chasing a pigeon, I shoot the blank and I'll start closer and closer and closer. And then I'll work up to a 410, but just, I haven't, let them catch a pigeon yet or anything like that. They're just pointing them. Yep. And then once they're good with the 410 and they're really bold on them, then what I'll do is I'll, like we did today, I put a pigeon on a card piece of cardboard in a launcher, and this bird can only fly so far. The cardboard's eventually going to bring them down, ideally. And um, so I'll, the puppy will point it. I'll walk in and flush the pigeon, and I shoot in the air. Or if the pigeon's flying away, I'll shoot at the pigeon. But not until the puppy is right after that bird do I really want to shoot yep. and maybe just getting right to the bird. And so then he gets his mouth on a bird. The first time he gets his mouth on the bird, he hears the shotgun. Yep. Um, and usually they don't, they don't look back, you know, right. now while you're going through this process, if the puppy ever is chasing and you shoot the 22 or whatever, and he breaks off his chase or looks back at you or yep. something, then you want to not shoot again for a little while. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that's I, what I was going to ask you about. Cause that's, that's the folks that are familiar with the process know that you want the puppy to just be all out chasing. Yep. And I think people have heard, you know, if the pup stops and looks back at you and I was going to have you kind of just even dive deeper. Like, is there, what other signs are you looking for that would give you pause at all? Yep. Sometimes just even breaking off a chase earlier. Yeah. Again, you don't really want it. There's no reason to rush the gun. Okay. If you see anything that you go like, this might be a big deal or it might be a little deal. The next bird or two just don't shoot. Yep. You know, you want that dog, when you shoot, you want that dog to not even, not even lose focus on the bird. Yep. You know, it shouldn't even acknowledge the shot. It's making that association, yep. but it shouldn't even acknowledge it. And, and most well-bred dogs are started out right and stuff. That isn't an issue. Right. 
you know? Yeah. And that's part of the kind of the stepping stone process in that you started with birds then you layered on the gun. So if there's any issue with the gun, you go back to the birds, which was right. already a positive experience. Right. And some people, and the other thing you can do, if you get a bird and there are some breeds that are more timid and things like that, that I've worked with, I'll let them right off. If they're not real chasey at the beginning, I'll put one of these pigeons and pull some wing feathers mm. and just let it flop, fly around. It like, can maybe fly a little ways and I'll just let that puppy catch a bird or two or even more. Until if, until you have a bird dog that's interested in birds, you have nowhere to go. You don't so have a bird you got, dog. <laughs> yeah, you got to get them interested in birds, you know. Yep. Some dogs you will only ever catch one bird in their whole life in my training field, and that's all they need. And some dogs might need three or four or five yep. to really build up, you know. Chasing it's not enough. They want to get their mouth on it. And some dogs, I've seen puppies, a pigeon will fly and land, and they'll run over there and sight point it. They won't even go after it. That's not a red flag, but it's like, and then the pigeon moves, and then they move, you know. And I was like, okay. That's not the worst thing, but I really want you to go in on that bird. I want a puppy that wants to go grab that bird, okay? Again, it, it doesn't mean the end of the world if they don't by any means or they're going to be gun shy or bird shy, but right. that's the ideal situation. Some dogs will point and point and point, and they're bold as heck, yep. okay? But they just don't want to put their mouth on the bird. So talking about intro to birds and intro to gun, I'm not going to ask you to say, when do you start doing this? But I am going to ask you when you start doing it. You know, everybody wants you to say at six months, you start doing the intro to birds and guns. But I know the answer is it depends. You got to pay attention to the dog. You got to read the dog. But what kind of a timeline are you working with? Or what are you looking for as far as when you're going to start that? Again, when we have our own dogs, I take the puppies for walks. And I usually don't do it much before 10 or 10 weeks anyhow. But I'll start throwing birds pigeons on the walks and again and, and rubbing when the puppy's not looking at me i'll rub the pigeon in the grass and get their nose in it and stuff yeah. like that and when they seem to get real excited and they're starting to chase it could be 10 weeks old now when I, if, if they're the right age when i have my johnny house quail i'll put 10 week old birds on quail a lot now because quail are little and they're they've got a buzzy fly and a lot of them will fly short at first you know and the puppies can get they get really excited about quail and sure. i've had lots of puppies pointing quail and hunting them at 12 13 weeks old. I've had a dog doing that on wild birds. So, yeah. I mean, you got to see their reaction. Yeah. You know, like yeah. you got to realize by the time our dogs are eight weeks old or nine weeks old, they've had all kinds of walks in the field. You know, if your dog the first time in the field, you're expecting to do all this. He doesn't even know what a sticker is or a grass or a rock, or he runs into a tree or a little tree that's hidden or something. No, that you can't do it all at once. Yeah. You know, first of all, they got to be comfortable with the environment. You know, that's, I guess I should have backed up one. I mean. Yeah, that's a good point. They got to be comfortable running through grass and in grass they can't see over and how to find you and not worry about getting out a little bit. And then you put the birds in them, you know. Yeah. And so that's why I don't like to take them for training sooner than five months because they're big enough to go into cover and stuff like that. Yep. Yeah, so it's all it's all part of the process, you know. You, you like here on this property, you take the dogs for walks. They're in a they're in a uh, setting that they've been in. They're comfortable. They're they're confident. They're having fun. Then you throw a bird. They react positively to the bird. They chase it. You're good. You move on to the gun, and it's all those things. You could just you could back up at each step. You could back up if mm -hmm. you had any issues at all. Mm -hmm. yeah. But it's like I said, there there is no timeline. Like right, Rick Smith quotes. You know, it takes as long as it takes, and mm -hmm. you're better off to take your time than to try to rush things. It's much better to say, oh, I could have did this a month ago than to say, I shouldn't have did that a month ago. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> All right, first hunting season. That's another one of those things where it's always different, right? People get pups at different times, different ages. But what are the things that you are hoping to see the the pup's first hunting season. I mean, are you, man, I really want to shoot one bird over this dog this year, or I don't care about that at all. I just want the dog to run in wild bird cover and contact birds. 
I mean, at the very base, you want a dog to be in wild bird cover finding birds. Okay. okay? You can't train them to find a bird. They got to want to find a bird. You got to take them where the birds are and you want them to hunt and find birds. If they point them, great. Now, most of our dogs nowadays, they're going to point them. Okay. They're yeah. going to, after a few contacts, they're going to point them. Okay. But it's the same thing. I wouldn't even, I wouldn't want to shoot the first one. You know, I would want to just make sure it's bold enough on them. And now these, because these are birds in a different spot. And if you're in the woods, the gunfire is different. I mean, yeah, even though I'm sure it, it won't be a big deal, you never know. Yeah. So you'd rather wait a little bit. But the goal would be to shoot some birds over the puppy. And yep. again, with most our puppies that are even four months old, at probably at the beginning of October, it's going to happen. Yep. They're going to they're gonna point some birds. As we talked earlier, I would rather have a puppy four months old at the beginning of hunting season than nine months old or 10 months old because... The puppy is going to learn so much more from you when it doesn't have the desire to get as far away and you can help it a lot more than you get a dog that's 10 months or a year. They're big and strong and they're running around and they're blow as many opportunities as they come across, you know, whereas a younger dog, you can, you can do a lot. It's amazing what can get done with a younger dog. And you, you did it with hardly the first year. Yeah. Yeah. So along those lines, tell me about a bird or birds that you wouldn't shoot? What are the things you're looking for with that young dog out there? What are the scenarios that you're not going to pull the trigger as far as, you know, we're talking mm-hmm. we're talking pointy dogs here, obviously. And so the goal is to have a dog that points his birds and holds them. So what situations are you are you looking at in that those early stages? Yep. I would say that after the dog has been into enough wild birds, even if it's not pointing them, I would shoot a couple for them. Okay. Just to let them know this is what we're after, you know, and praise the dog when he goes over to the bird and things like that. But again, most of the young dogs that I'm familiar with, they're going to be pointing some of them. Yeah. And, but it's not like the dog's got to do it perfectly. I mean, if you've got a puppy that's 50 yards away from you or 40 yards away and you start walking over there and you get within gunshot range and he goes and bumps the bird, that's good enough for the first year. He, he found the bird. He held it till you could get there close enough to shoot. Good enough. Now you can start over time fine-tuning it and say, okay, now if you're going to bump it, if you're going to run in before I get there, I'm not going to shoot it. Yeah. yeah. You know? And the dog will, as it gets more mature, they typically go through a phase like this. When they're first, when they're young, they smell a bird and they point because they're unsure of what that is exactly, especially a different game bird. And in, their instinct is the point. Okay. And everybody thinks, wow, my dog is, he's got it down. Well, now he's going to find a few more, and he's going to get bolder, and maybe you do shoot one of those. And now he's going to say, I want to get a little closer to that bird and see where he really is, because even though that when he pointed the first time, that bird might not have been right where he thought it was because it had moved off already. Yeah. And then the dog starts figuring on location of the bird. Valuable lesson there. You want that dog to be able to not just point where the bird was. You want him to point where the bird is. So you let him follow that bird, usually through air scent, or they'll do something like that, and get it pointed. And so what if they bump it? If they bump it, you don't shoot it. But you want it to do that. And then they're going to get to a stage maybe where they even get more aggressive, and they put them in the air. Your little puppy that three weeks ago was pointing perfectly staunch is now pointing less. Yep. That's part of the development. Now they're going to chase and get tired of it. And when they come back to pointing again, they've learned a ton right there. And now your dog is really ready you know, that might take a whole season. It might not. That's a dog ready to move on. When he's said, whoo, I've chased enough of those. And I like it better when I point them and you come over here and you shoot them. That's what you're looking for. But it's a progression. You don't want to ask them. They're not going to do it perfect the first yeah. time. You yeah. just ask a little more as they're ready for it. Yeah. And that's, that's really what I was, what I was trying to pull out of you is just that, that first season, you know, anybody that has expectations of, you know, a, a staunch three month old puppy, you know, holding a rough grouse that you're going to shoot down like a like a painting or something, you know, that that's probably not going to happen. Not that I couldn't, yeah. but I, I recall my 
buddy Garrett and I laugh all the time because it was the second week of Hartley's first season. He was young. He was three months old and we were done hunting. I met Garrett at his, at his shack up in Northern Minnesota. And we were standing on the tailgate, having a beer. And there's a little logging road that goes down there and it had just been cut actually. So it didn't look like, Hey, this is grouse area, right? Well, we're having a beer. Guns are put away in the truck and we walk down this little logging road, 25 yards. And there's little three month old Hartley just kind of totaling around the up ahead of us on the, on the dirt road. All of a sudden he turns steps off the road and his tail you you know how the tail kind of like it looks like it floats up like that i mean a young puppy and his tail floats right up and i remember i pointed at hartley and i said would you look at that garrett wouldn't it be funny if there was a grouse there and sure enough there was three grouse that all took off right below that we sat there with our beers in our hands and we're like could have shot a bird over that dog right there yeah but that was like the ideal scenario but then there's other scenarios where, you know, you have a pup out there and he might, he might flash point or he's work he's working some scent. And so what I'm, what I'm getting from you is, is really in that first season, a shot bird here or there on some, hopefully some good dog work or good for a puppy work is, you know, you don't necessarily need to worry about ruining that dog for the rest of his life no. by putting a bird down. No, you want him excited about hunting birds. Yeah. And if you have to shoot a bird or so that he hasn't quite pointed right, you know, it's not a big deal. Most of our dogs in particular, and a lot of pointing dogs, you know, pointers and setters, yeah. they have a lot of point. You're yeah. not going to, you're not going to ruin them. You, you do more damage, not shooting a bird for them sure. to let them know and give them and praising them and things like that. I yeah. mean, uh, and it should be fun. I've had some people say, oh, that first year was so frustrating. Well, your expectations must've been wrong. Cause yeah. it should be fun because your puppy's going to be one, one time in its life. Yeah. And then by the time it's four, you're going to forget that first season, you know, because everything has been going in line and getting better every year. So just enjoy it and hoot the puppy on when he bumps a bird and chases it, you know, and yeah. just let him have fun. That's that's a that's probably a great way to round up this conversation. I know that I will. I had fun when Hartley was a puppy. I really did. But as a as a first time bird dog owner, and I've talked about this at length, there was lots of like, man, am I doing this right or am I doing this wrong? You know, there was a lot of that, which I will have a lot less of that this time. So I know I will have more fun and. And obviously, I'm I'm blessed to have a dog like Hartley as it is. So it's it's going to be a ton of fun this fall. What's on tap for you ahead? I mean, you got puppies in the kennel here. You got you got a busy summer with shipping those off to clients, and you're you're training dogs, and you'll be itching for fall just like the rest of us. Mm-hmm. We got uh, the one litter that's two weeks younger than uh, the one you're getting one out of, and then we have another litter due next Friday, um, which will be the last one. Everything's really late this year. The females just came in late. What are you going to do? Yeah. Um, but so I'll be working those puppies. I start working wild birds locally, you know, about the first of August. I got a probably two weeks hunting trip planned in Montana, yep. late September. And then I go into grouse guiding and takes me into early November and we head down to Georgia. Living the dream. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I pinch myself every day. That's for sure. <laughs> that's good. Well, Jerry, thank you again for joining us on the Project Upland podcast. I really appreciate it. This was fun and won't be the last time. All right. I look forward to it. All right. Thanks, All right. Jerry. You bet. Thank you. All right, that does it for this episode of the Project Upland Podcast. Thank you for listening, everybody. A quick reminder that the podcast is brought to you by Onyx Hunt, Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food, CZ USA, and Dakota 283 Kennels. Don't forget to leave us a rating, leave us a review, subscribe to the podcast, and share the podcast for your chance to win the Project Upland Podcast giveaway. And head over to projectupland.com for more of the Upland Birds, Dogs, guns and gear that you love until we see you back here for the next episode of the project upland podcast
Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.